join me in Ephesians 1. If you are not there already, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening our hearts are rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our hope that is sure. Heavenly Father, the resurrection is everything to us. Even as Paul mentioned, if Christ be not raised, then our faith is in vain, and yet we rejoice this evening, for it is not in vain. For Christ is risen from the dead. He is ascended on high. He is seated at your right hand. He is pleading for us, and our hope is sure. And so as the church, we gather this evening in hope and in confidence and in joy, proclaiming to one another and to the world around us that our God lives, that his gospel saves, that Jesus has died for their sins, and that there is a living hope. So Heavenly Father, even as we look at this passage this evening, may we be all the more encouraged. May we see all that you have given us in Christ and the guarantee of these things in Christ so that me may go from this place and boldly proclaim this message of good news that we may live like it is true to your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember as a kid, one of the shows that my mom would watch throughout the day, or she'd at least have it on the TV as she was doing things around the house, was a show called Antique Roadshow. And basically, people would bring their junk, things that they found in their house, and they'd put it on a table, and there'd be someone there who would look at it and appraise it. And, and a lot of the times, they'd be looking at this and be like, wow. This is actually worth a lot of money. This is special. This is unique. Sometimes there'd be something that they'd set up on that table and it wouldn't look like much of anything. And it would turn out to be priceless. Things that they had been passed down, things that they had gotten for cheap somewhere, had just found. And it turns out that it was immense, had immense value and worth. Just recently, just this last week, I read a story about a woman who found a, a little tiny Roman bust, a little tiny Roman statue. And you, you see those around. They, you, know, you can get them at Hobby Lobby or whatever. She found one at a Goodwill. She bought it. She brought it home. And the more she looked at it, the more she studied it, it seemed to be actually pretty old. So she did. She went and she got it appraised and found out that it actually was from Roman times. It was the real deal. This was not a Hobby Lobby thing. It had been stolen 
during World War II. They were able to trace its history and where it had been. It had been in a, a museum somewhere over in Europe and then had been stolen and ended up somehow in a goodwill in America. And she bought it for cheap and then donated it to this museum after she figured all that out. But it, it changes your view of that thing after you realize how much it's worth, right? If it's just a $10 Hobby Lobby statue, you treat it one way. But knowing that it's a priceless piece of history, there's value there that changes how you treat that thing, right? You don't put it on a level where kids can get to it. You donate to a museum or you put it up somewhere high, you protect it. Understanding the value of things is important to how you act, interact with those things. In Ephesians 1, Paul is trying to get these Ephesian believers to understand what they have in Christ, to understand their value in Christ. In fact, you come to verse 15, it starts, Therefore, Therefore, after verses 3 to 14, this, this long sentence expounding upon all, all the things that, that we have taken possession of in Christ, every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ, the glory of the gospel. In those verses, verses 3 to 14, he has touched on the past, the present, and the future. He's touched on our predestination, our election, our redemption, our glorification. All of these things that are ours in Christ. Now you come to verse 15 to 23. Again, this is another one long sentence. And in here we find a prayer. Paul turns his attention now. He's, he's expounded upon these blurted forth this gospel message to all these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And then he pauses here and he, he's thankful for these Ephesians. And then he launches into another prayer. A prayer for his readers to know God personally and intimately. Therefore, Based on all of these things that I've said, this glory of this gospel, I also, after heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. I am thankful for you. After expounding on all of these spiritual blessings, he rejoices in the fact that these Ephesian believers know these blessings. They are yours. You are believers. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am rejoicing in that. In fact, how do I know that? Because not only do I hear of your faith, but of your love for all the saints. Your love for one another. Paul understands, he knows that love for your brothers and sisters in Christ naturally flows from faith in Christ. This is the evidence of their faith. Oh, that our churches would be known not only for our faith, but also for our love. Those two go together. Love that flows from faith. 
And it causes Paul here to, to explode in thanks. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Making mention of you in my prayers. Like a proud parent just bursting forth in joy. If you've had kids, you know that, that feeling when, you're, when your kid does something that just makes you proud. When they give someone a piece of candy or they, or they say a nice word or they go out of their way to help someone and you, just, you can feel it welling up inside of you, that, that joy, that, man, I'm proud of them. As a pastor, I often feel that. Even for the church, that the Lord has called me to pastor. Even on Wednesdays as we gather here and, and I hear testimony after testimony, pray for this person that I share the gospel with. As your pastor, that makes me well up inside with joy. Or even as I see you love and care for one another, it makes me well up with joy. Like Paul here, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. But what is it that Paul is praying for? If you, if you like to take um, notes and follow along to the outline, I'm sorry, I don't have an outline. I tried this week, I really tried to do an outline, but... This prayer just flow. It's hard to break it up into an outline. So we're just going to work our way through it. Uh, hopefully you can still get something out of it. But making mention of you in my prayers, that. So Paul here, he, he, I, I pray for you. I'm thankful for you. I praise the Lord for you. And not only do I praise the Lord for you, but I also pray for you. I pray to this end. What is it that Paul prayers, prays? That. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. My prayer is that you would know him and know him more. Our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The idea of, of spirit there, in verse 17, it is not necessarily the, the Holy Spirit, but it is more the idea of a disposition, an attitude, that you would come to, to know these facts and then to live according to them. That this would be the spirit that marks your life. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation. It's one thing to know facts. Wisdom is not just knowing facts, but it's rightly applying them. It is insight into the true nature of things. And revelation. We know what revelation is. Revelation is the revealing of truth. Specifically in this, call, in this context, revelation of what? Revelation in the knowledge of him. The revelation of who God is. The revelation that he has put forth to you in the word of God. That you may come to know him and know him more and apply that knowledge in wisdom. In the knowledge of him. Wisdom that flows from knowledge of him. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. As you know him, 
and know him more. But he doesn't stop there. He may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, under understanding and applying the knowledge of him. How can we do that? The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Fully opened by the grace of God, you have been enlightened. When the Holy Spirit reveals the Father to us, Jesus Christ reveals the Father to us in the word of God. Notice again that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. This isn't something that you just come to know through studying. This wisdom and revelation is a gift of God given to you by grace as he reveals, as he opens your eyes and enlightens you to these facts. There's some specific things that, that Paul wants you to know. There's actually three specific things that he mentions here. This is my prayer, that you would know God and know about him and know what he has said and done and in wisdom that you would apply that. Specifically this, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. That you may know your hope in Christ. What is it that you are hoping for? What is it that you are clinging to? This hope is an absolute certainty of your victory in Christ. That what you have been called to, you will take possession of. God will not abandon you. He will bring to completion what he has begun. Even your inheritance, as we saw in verses 11 and 14, your inheritance in Christ, your salvation, your redemption. You will be saved. You will be changed. God will complete in you what he has begun. And Paul here, he wants you to know that. Not just, not just like you know all the states and capitals. He wants this to be something that impacts you and the way that you live and think this is true. You have hope. There was a future. Even as we saw this morning talking about the idea of, of faith. Like all these saints who have gone before us, we too are looking for a kingdom. We are longing for that. And we know that it will come because our God is faithful. Our hope is sure. So his calling is sure. I want you to know that, to deeply understand that, that it may impact your life. But not just the hope of your calling, but look at the next thing. Also, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Not only do I want you to know the hope of his calling, but I want you to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's one of the themes of Ephesians. Your riches in Christ. And yet notice something here. What are the riches of the glory of your inheritance? It says of his inheritance and the saints. His inheritance. 
Not only do I want you to know your hope, I want you to know your worth. He's not saying here that he wants you to know your inheritance. He wants you to understand that you are God's inheritance. And that he sees you as the riches of glory. You have worth. Your inheritance is mentioned in verses 11 and 14 here of chapter 1. He's not talking about your inheritance. He's talking about God's inheritance, which is you, the saints. Not only do I want you to know your hope, I want you to know your worth. We often will talk about false teachers or, or preachers who are always preaching just a positive message. Right? You have worth. You are good. I'm not preaching that, but I am preaching a positive message because that's what this passage proclaims. This passage proclaims that you have worth. God values you. You are God's inheritance. And the good news then because you are God's inheritance, God will not be denied his inheritance. God's inheritance is the saints, and it is a rich inheritance. Paul wants you to understand this, not only your hope. You have hope that God will complete what he has begun, but also your worth. You are God's inheritance, and God will receive his inheritance. It is not just your inheritance that is at stake in your salvation. It is God's inheritance. And what hope is there? That I will receive my inheritance, the hope of my calling, and that God will receive his. Not only do I want you to know these things, but verse 19, it's the power of God. I want you to know your resources. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Not only do you have hope, not only do you have worth, but you have God's power on your side. The power of God himself, God Almighty, who created the universe with a word. The exceeding greatness of his power. It's almost as if Paul wants you to understand this, right? the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Right? God is powerful. I want you to get this. God is powerful. He repeats it twice here. You have hope. You have worth. And God's power is on your side. His great power is working for you. It is available to you in Christ. It is at work in you, through you, and for you. His greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are the things that I want you to understand. You Ephesian church. I've gone through your, your riches in Christ, every spiritual blessing that you have, and now I want you to pause and think it through. Know, know that you have a hope, a hope that is sure, that is not corruptible, 
a hope that will not pass away. Not only do you have a hope in Christ, you have worth. God cares about you. He loves you. You, as the saints, are his inheritance. And you have his power that is working for you. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us who are the saints, is it not? In fact, we've seen that power at work, have we not? That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 20. It is this power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's power at work for us in the cross of Jesus Christ, in his resurrection from the dead, in his ascension on high. Even as he takes the, the seat of authority, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, it, it seems like we've been really focusing on that passage from Psalm 110.1, seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. That is all throughout Hebrews. And here we find ourselves looking at it once again in Ephesians 1. Because that matters. He is seated. His work is done. It is finished. Our hope is sure. The death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ proclaims the power of God. It proclaims the faithfulness of God. And it proclaims the surety of our hope. That is God's power at work for you. The same God who made you a promise and set you aside as his inheritance, that is that power working for you to bring about these things that he has promised. His work is finished. Our inheritance is secure. God's inheritance is secure. So our hope is sure. Unless we still think that, well, maybe, maybe our inheritance can still be snatched away. Maybe God's inheritance of the saints can still be snatched away. Paul wants you to understand that that is not even a possibility because he seated him in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That covers everything. There is nothing and no one more powerful than Jesus Christ and God himself. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, and not only in this age, but well, maybe in the next age, even in the next age to come, in any age. There's no one that can snatch you out of Christ's hand. There's no one that can snatch you out of God's hand. You have a future, you have hope, you have worth, and you have God's power at work for you. Don't you see everything that God has given to you in Christ? Don't you see your hope? Don't you see then what that means for you today? You don't have to worry at that slip up this afternoon, that sin that you gave into, that you lost your salvation. 
You can't lose it. You don't have to worry that, that someone can, can come along and separate you from Jesus Christ. They can't. You don't have to worry that God will forget or misplace you. He won't. You are secure. You go into verse 22 then. Paul keeps building on this. And he put all things under his feet. He has all authority and all things are under his feet. Not only are all the, the powers of this world, all the powers of the evil one, all the powers that ever have been or ever will be inferior to Christ and his rule, they are also subject to him. Because all things have been put under his feet. Even as Psalm 8.6 says, Hebrews 2.8, talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ, all things have been set under his feet. All of this in fulfillment of Genesis 1.26-28. Where Christ, as the last Adam, restores dominion over creation. All things are under his dominion. There was nothing outside of his reign. And gave him, God gave him to be head over all things to the church. Gave him to be head of all things to the church. Him who is head over all things. He who has authority and power and dominion. been given to the church. Even the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Our hope and the fulfillment of the Great Commission is in that authority of Jesus Christ. Our hope that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is in the authority and the power and the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet this is where it really gets fascinating. Because here in verses 22 and 23, we not only see this relationship between Christ and the church, where this one who has dominion over all things is given to the church. This is not only a, a, a slave and master relationship where he rules over us and we, we, we do whatever. But this church to which Christ was given is his body. This is an organic relationship. In fact, this is the foundation on which Paul will go on in Ephesians 5 verses 28 to 32 to talk about the husband and the wife and their relationship to one another as one flesh, one body. In Genesis, as God creates Eve and Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's the idea here. This Lord over all this powerful God, this Christ who has dominion. The church is his body, connected to him organically. 
Don't you see then the importance of the church, the privileges and the power that we have here? Don't you see all that God has given to the church in Christ? This is why church matters. It is not just an organization where we gather to worship God. It is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. The fullness. It is not just that Christ rules over the church. Rather, He rules through the church. We have a unique relationship with Christ. Where His rule is expressed on the earth right now through His church. His church is central to God's work and to Christ's work in this dispensation. And even as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 5, 28-32, this is a mystery. But he's referring to Christ and the church. Pictured in marriage. As husband and wife come together. There's a picture of this very thing that we see here in verses 22 and 23. Jesus Christ, who has dominion over all, and the church, his body, here on earth. So in these verses, in this prayer here, As Paul is is writing to this church and praying for them, he is saying, this is my prayer that you may know this. I want you to know these riches. I want you to know that you have hope. I want you to know that you have worth. I want you to know that God's power is at work in, through, and for you. And I want you to know that you saints in the church, that you are the body of Christ. That he is ruling through you. That you have authority. That what you do as you gather, that matters. As you proclaim to the world around you the gospel, the authority, the dominion of Jesus Christ. These are things that we know. These are things that I'm sure the Ephesian church knew. I I don't think I've said any one thing this evening that is new to any of us in here. The question is not, do you know these things? The question is, have you taken time to think through them and to apply them to your life? Not, do you know them? But do you know what it means for you? It means that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. It means that the gospel that you proclaim has power. It means that what we do as we gather as the church, that it matters. It means that we have the power of God backing what we are doing here. It means that you will not lose your inheritance because you are God's inheritance. You have hope and you have worth. And don't forget it. 
Don't forget it. Because that gives purpose and meaning to every day of your life, to every interaction that you have. My prayer as I was studying this passage is along the lines of Paul's prayer that we would come to know these things, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our hands and in our feet. That we would think through the truths of the gospel and the hope that is ours, and we would think through what that means practically, daily. It's easy to forget these things. It's easy to get distracted by the problems of life, by our fears. Brothers and sisters, wake up. Know the riches that are yours in Christ. Understand that. Take hold of that and live like it is true. Live like you do have worth, like God does care about you. Live like your hope is sure. Live like the gospel actually has power. Live like those around you are dying and going to hell. Live like it matters what we do here as a church. Like it is important. Live like your hope is in Christ. I pray that the Lord will work in our hearts even through this passage. We're going to close with the song, Thine Be the Glory. Risen, conquering Lord.